Hello, welcome and thank you for joining us at Live from the Hive, a place where we discuss early years in education and how we can get the best from both to ensure that all children have the best start in life. In our current series on neurodiversity, we've talked about a range of topics linked to it. Today, we'll be speaking with Jane Green. Jane was diagnosed with autism well into her 50s. As well as autism, Jane is living with hypermobility. Jane will be speaking about her journey towards getting a diagnosis and how it is living with autism and hypermobility. Hope you enjoy the episode. So hello and welcome to Life from the Hive, series two. Our guest today is Jane Green. Jane, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you for coming on. So Jane, um, we arranged to have a chat because you near enough have a life of experience regarding autism. So um, we just want to have a bit, a bit of a discussion, got a few questions to go through. And um, I just don't know if you want to start off by maybe telling us what it is you're doing at the moment. Um, at the moment, I support and advocate for people um, who are autistic and neurodivergent and also have um, health issues. So um, advocating in health, um, social care, education, which was my profession, uh, employment, and also transport accessibility. It's basically the whole gamut, actually, because it, it affects our whole life. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Supporting everybody everywhere. <laughs> so, Jane, um, I had a chat um, with a lady called Katrina, and she basically was giving us an overview on what autism is. The one thing that I was really keen to start a discussion with you about, though, rather than discussing what autism is, it was to start discussing what an autistic diagnosis entails. So when a person is going to be diagnosed, who do they go to and what happens there? It, it depends what age you are. So if okay. it's a poor child, it will be done by a parent or carer or in some cases, local authority directly if they're in care. Um, but if it's for an adult, you can go to your GP and get referred, um, asked to be referred to a specialist. Usually it would be in your local county. So it'd be, it, it quite varies a lot, I find. And I did actually ask some of my members this the other day. Um, so there might be a specialist autistic neurodivergent services in your county, or they might just have different um, psychiatrists and so on, or specialist nurses can do it as well. So it, it really, really quite varies a lot. Um, but what we do find is there's a very long waiting list to be assessed. So if you generally, if you go to a, um, a general practitioner, and they will ask you why, you know, you want a diagnosis um, and, and that's fair. And you would say, well, whatever you, you might say, I'm not going to say it for you. I know what I said. And, um, and, and depending how knowledgeable they are and up to date on autism they are, especially if you're a woman, you know, uh, and older, they might think what? are you talking about? <laughs> but um, so I didn't have that experience, luckily, um, but it does really vary from person to person. 
and then you you will have um, a screening test usually you can do an online screener yourself if you're not even sure if you want to be referred um, just to see and it'll give you an indicator and then they if you're being assessed they will send you screening more screening paperwork to do and they might ask um, your family to do one or your parents if they're still alive depending on your age and they might do a telephone consultation first and then you you might be assessed once or twice and then they go through your report okay so um with regards to the um online assessment that you mentioned is that something that could be used for adults and children or is it more so adults that would use that uh, well, you can do it on the behalf of the child, if but they're slightly different. Um, and I have to say that there's been a slight bias, a diagnostic bias against um, these screening tools for women and also um, for those without a learning disability. Um, they are quite, some of the questions are quite difficult to answer. Um, so they might say, um, do you find it hard to um, concentrate on one thing at a time or can you do multiple things and um, if you can do multiple things then you're going to get oh, you know it's not it's not an all or nothing but I'm just saying it all adds up or uh, do sensory noises really irritate you well sometimes they do sometimes they don't it depends on the context and how what what it is so um, you know the questions are quite annoying actually <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but some of the things will indicate that, and and hopefully um, they will they will see you anyway, depending on that. But um, to get the referral from the GP, you you have to say why you think you know it's you need it, and and why you think you are autistic, which is fair enough. So, Jen, you yourself have been through this process. So um, you mentioned that it was a bit later in life that you actually got your diagnosis. Could you tell us a bit about your experience with attempting to get a diagnosis, then finally getting one? Um, well, I ever since I was quite young, I, I knew something was different because, um, <laughs> but I didn't know what. And I think our family was quite different. Um, but I knew I, I used to like, counting right. lines on pavements you know the cracks in between quite a lot and I found it difficult to talk and I found it difficult okay. to look at people in the yeah. eye all that sort of thing and and apparently I was yeah. quite quite quiet quite mute sort of passive kind of and I couldn't really work things out as a really bad student and things so but I didn't know much about it I but then I saw that film um, Blade Runner. Okay. Now this might be odd, and this was back in the day because I am old. <laughs> uh, Nineteen twenty-seven, I think it was. And when I saw the replicant, you know, they come down and they want to be mixed into society and pretend they're human. That's how I felt. Right. I thinking that. Yeah. And, but again, you know, and then I started training in autism, so I'm an autism professional. And it was really um, discombobulating is my favourite word at the moment because um, it was like I knew what autism was in the books yeah. and from researchers and we were developing training and I was working with lots of um, students and children 
And yet I knew I was part of it. Mm. And I had my eldest as well, my eldest child who got an early diagnosis. And I started studying psychology. So I knew again, but at the same time, I knew I couldn't be because women can't be. And so that's really, really mixed up. And so going on, um, I didn't have that sort of support in because if you do have a diagnosis and you can disclose it, you get support Absolutely. and reasonable adjustments made in your work yeah. and so on. And I didn't get any of that. Um, and I didn't I I do make mistakes. I it's not mistakes. I don't understand the social environment because okay. it's different. Yeah. I'm not saying um, I make mistakes, but I make maybe mistakes in consultations, in jobs, okay. or um, and, and working out what's going on uh, that's not being said verbally or, um, you know, clearly verbally, I'll take it word for word, yeah. literally, or visually, I don't understand the politics sometimes. And um, that was to my detriment. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so... Unfortunately, because of my, I have health issues, I had to retire as well. And um, after I, I had a, a diagnosis for my health, a year later, I wasn't doing much because I was really unwell. Yeah. And I thought, right, I might as well get on with it and get my autism diagnosis. And I found a lovely GP and I said, I think I want a referral. And she said, why? And I said, because I am autistic. And she said, and she didn't disagree. She said, okay, no. but why do you want it? And I said, for closure. So, right. um, and then I got referred. This is a really interesting bit though. Okay. I got referred and I had to do this screening, this paperwork. Yeah. And I rang them up and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it at all. I'm going to give up. I can't do it. And he said, why? And I said, well, I know exactly what to say. I do these. I've right. been doing these for a living. Yeah. And I'll be lying because I know what to tick and I know what you're looking for. And I just feel really uncomfortable about doing it at all. And then he said, well, I'd expect you to say that. And I went, oh, <laughs> so, okay, that's all right. Then I'll go. Um, and I was told it'd be a very long time. And the other thing is because I worked in, in my County, I wanted to get outside my County. Okay. So they didn't know me. Um, and I did. And then I said, and he said, why have you come here? And I said, because I don't want anyone to know who I am and right. what I've done. I want it to be authentic. And he said, I'd expect you to say that too. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was waiting for, I thought it would be a long time because he said it would be. And it is generally about two years. I think I was very lucky. So hold on. So once you had your test, you have to wait two years to get your diagnosis. At the moment, it's a two-year two waiting list for assessment, oh, not the okay. diagnosis, it's for wow. the assessment. It's a two-year waiting list, yeah. But I didn't. I was lucky. I, I waited three months, unusually, from what I gather. And um, and then I had to go down to this specialist place, and I had a very long assessment, like three and a half hours, yeah. but it went quite quickly but it was three and a half hours. And um, obviously um, I couldn't get many of my family to talk about me because I'm old um, and they won't remember, but uh, it, it was talking about my history and issues. And the only thing that they were concerned about was I don't present as anxious. Yeah. But you see, I'm a trained yeah. teacher 
and I, I'm used to speaking. I do yeah. conferences, um, and my anxiety is different in that I like to do things, and if I'm not doing things, I can get anxious. Right. Um, but I don't present as like anxious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a different type of anxiety, yeah. I think. Um, and and sometimes I can Absolutely. get anxious. But with all of this, I mean, you've said a couple of times that you felt like uncomfortable in certain social situations, you know, as an adult and maybe when you were younger as well. Can you explain what sort of social situations you would feel uncomfortable in and what it is that would be concerning to you about those situations? Well, there are so many. So some of them are sensory. And being a teacher was very difficult in the dining hall, the noise even restaurants, the especially wooden floors and wooden sides and, and cutlery, and it's just um, overwhelming sensory noise. So obviously dining halls, but I had to, I had to do it. Um, I find sensory issues on the train when I was commuting home. When I'm tired, I cannot stand some people eating crisps on the train. And they tend to sit opposite me for some reason and eat them really slowly. And they were also smelly like pickled onion. This was when before COVID and when I was commuting and they would just eat it one by one and it was absolute torture for me. And then sometimes they'd get another packet out and eat it and I was ready to kill them basically. Uh, <laughs> so obviously that's an issue for me, but also, um, if if sometimes I can't speak, so I can go mute still, and that's under stress conditions. So there are various conditions like certain hospitals, I can go mute, or certain stressful situations at airports, I will go mute because it brings up past trauma for me. Or I feel very, um, I don't know, something attacked, I suppose, like it's a fight-flight response, and it's my... I just have to go mute. And so when I'm in that situation, all I can do is type out things, um, you know, in the chat line or something like that. Or um, I start, uh, so I find that quite difficult. And I also find it quite difficult because I've got health issues. Sometimes I have to move around because I get a lot of muscle spasms and rigidity. Um, uh, but I forget to tell people things like that and they think I'm leaving because <laughs> I suddenly get up and move and I realize I haven't to but also I'm quite literal so if someone if I ask someone how they are and they say fine and there's nothing more like I'm fine today but I wasn't yesterday that's because with health issues we often say that but if they say I'm fine and everything's good and we're working well or I really like this then I will believe them and yet I might find out later that that wasn't the truth and they're really, really unhappy. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't they say something? I don't understand that situation at all. And also, um, if there's sort of political things when I was working, I didn't understand the agenda and really what was going on. I took it literally um, and that didn't work either too well. So I suppose in groups are... Uh, I, I, I might tend to talk about one or two subjects passionately, but I've learned over the years that not everybody, I once had a passion on scuba diving 
And I remember for a whole two months, I talked nothing about it. <laughs> and someone said, why are you going to talk about that scuba diving again? And I thought, I, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> so I can you know adapt and I, I um and it was really anxiety because I didn't know what else to talk about and that I think that's quite common a because we think everybody might like our passion because it's really interesting but b we didn't know how to make small talk all the time and yet the demand is there for us to do it and not just to be quiet because often I find and I find other people like to go into a room and assimilate the environment before we feel comfortable to talk um, and I definitely generally would prefer that um, so I'm a bit like wallpaper um, I like to be in the corner and then I'll come out <laughs> or is it an insect or a crab or something <laughs> I don't know. you've mentioned so many things just there. I mean, like you've mentioned like the mental health aspect that's linked with um, autism, but a part that I'm really keen for you to share more about, it's some of the health considerations that can be attached to autism. So the additional health um, considerations that an individual might have. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So as a child, I had a lot of issues. I've got a diagnosis called um, hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos, and I have dislocations as well, and I have a lot of stomach issues, and I had migraine, and I get, um, I keep being tested for diabetes, but I don't have it, but I get um, very low blood sugar, where I feel really faint and shaky and hot, so it's like all the presentation of diabetes, but okay. it wasn't, and, and the test would come back negative, mm. and I go, and then you're sent off. You know, it's always a negative test and you're sent away. And I thought, well, because I'm literal, even with physically with dislocations, mm. um, and I had someone put it back. So but by the time I saw a specialist, um, they didn't believe it could happen because it's so unusual without any proceeding like accident or trauma. It can just happen. And um, because they didn't believe me, yeah. I thought, well, it can't have happened. Yeah, I knew it did. I know. It, yeah. It's totally bizarre. Um, and I, I was, I didn't know what to do. And therefore, I didn't get the right support medically. Right. Um, but I didn't feel I ever wanted to go back to those places because they said, they thought I was making it up. That's horrific. I mean, it's crazy to think that somebody would advise an individual that the individual is not feeling pain. I mean. Well, I think... I think it's called hypervigilance and she was intimating that I was making it up or being psychosomatic, that it was all in my head. And um, there's a lot going in your head by then, to be honest. So the physical and the mental are all joined up, but it was, it was hard. Yeah. And, and that's where you get, you can get a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder because you just feel you're not being believed. And then yeah. when you get a nice doctor or consultant, you'll go, ah, you know, really fight against them. And they're actually being very pleasant. So I've got to be open-minded. And I, I, I try to do that with everybody until it happens again. But um, generally, I, I hope there's going to be more knowledge. And everyone thinks it's all about dislocating your joints and things, which I do. I have that ability. But... Um, is also so much more because it it's um, 
a tissue in our body called the connective tissue and it's defective and connective tissues throughout our body everywhere i mean it's in our ears our eyes our teeth and um so everyone presents in a different way and i've learned about it since getting my ellis daniels one and then i realized how many people how many autistic and neurodivergent people were actually had this these issues as well. I was going to say it leads to another thing because, um, like you've mentioned your um, diagnosis, you've mentioned professionals you've been um, referred to. When you got your initial diagnosis, what happened next? So when they said, you know, Jane, you know, you have autism, was there support that you were directed to? Was there any help or advice you were given? No. Um, oh, I think there is, uh, now, um, I didn't get any, I, I was under the impression that all the support groups were generally for younger children, generally boys and some other male groups, uh, or those with learning disabilities. I did, um, I did know one, so I did say I knew one, and I won't name, and I did go along, but it, it, it was definitely not for me. It was very um, okay. dependent on other people leading it, and um, <laughs> I am an assistant head teacher, so that doesn't go down well with me when they're not saying maybe the right things to people in their best interests. And also, mm-hmm. you know, the, what's really interesting is there's so many people, professionals like me, I mean, women are half the population at least, or transbinary and so on. Yeah. Um, we're not being recognized or acknowledged at all, particularly those working in jobs. So they, you know, they're not, they're not on the radar for these other groups. And so I left with nothing. Um, I, so you get a report, sorry, you do get a report. And um, that was it. Hmm. So I had nothing. And again, I felt totally, I'm going to say that word again, discombobulated because I spent 54 years not knowing. And then suddenly I've got this diagnosis. I didn't believe it. Again, I had that like, I think I'm just pretending. Maybe I'm really not. Um, And it was really hard. And I think that's quite common. And I spent a lot of, about a couple of years not really knowing actually or accepting it too much um and then finally it, it it's sinking in and it, it it's a very strange situation because then i didn't belong in any group round in my local area because they were all very political or very young adult which was significant but no there wasn't anything and um i tried a few things but i I did get some counselling and I I get it, um, it's not counselling as such. I had it for my health issues at first and then I get um, a talk once a month with someone, uh, which has been very useful. I I think without it, um, I don't know where I'd be actually, but otherwise there hasn't been a lot and it's been quite spasmodic so I'd say only in the last year 
if I'd been able to talk to someone um, and been accepted for who I am, that I am a professional, I am articulate and I can, you know, advocate strongly on, on things. But I found there were more and more people, um, women, some older than me, but mainly younger. Well, actually, they're coming in all ages now. And so I started a group uh, for us in the local area um, because we we just want to, you know, meet up or go out or talk or not talk and be safe, but not they don't want to disclose their diagnosis. And what's really sad is some of them um, would rather move their professional career than disclose their diagnosis. So for me, that's not acceptable. Um, you know, um, one of the things, and I say this all the time, so I've worked with a range of children with a range of special educational needs. And the one thing I've always rested my hat on is a relationship with the child is literally going to be the most important thing that you do. Because I think the point that you're making of wanting to be around other people where you can talk or not talk, but you can just be yourself, which is what I think all humans need to know that you're seen, you're heard, cared for, you know, and you can just be you. Because no matter what training you do, and I've been involved in a lot, um, people get a certificate or accreditation, yeah? I'm an expert at this and I'm going, well, I'm not an expert, definitely. Um, I'm still learning. But um, I, with my eldest, uh, I've had to put in support when I wasn't around or when I was traveling. And you'd get these people from certain groups saying, oh, we've done this, we've done that. And they were not the right person. They were very tick box mentality. But you get someone who's never had any training said, but I'm open to learn. And they just gelled so well and oh blossomed and really got they both had the same interest as well which helped um and it didn't matter and um it was great so no I totally agree and that's why you know activities and passions are so important for us because it as well as health issues um and understanding that because no matter what passion or interest you've got if you can't do it you might lose interest in it to be honest because I used to love dancing and sport and all sorts. And I had to stop because it was too painful because I couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, I, I think the relationship is really key. And, you know, it, I think a lot of people get very lonely um, because they don't have anyone to talk to. And we can be quite blunt, I suppose, at times. So I don't do a lot of smiley faces and and extra things on emails like I get from some people and 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 or comments and things and then people think I'm being blunt because it might be one or two words and they take offense oh another things like I don't always see people or recognize them out of context or even I even recognize don't recognize myself sometimes and I look at myself on the screen that's me but I know it's really weird um, but in the car before, when I used to go to school and drop off my other child and things, um, and I'd be talking to parents, and then we'd be driving in the car, I'd be going one way, and obviously they were coming another way, and they gave me a lot of um, 
they were very upset because I'd ignored them in the car and they said they were waving at me and I've ignored them on purpose and I hadn't noticed them and they they didn't believe me or I can walk past someone and not see them and they take it I suppose it is offensive to them if you ignore them but I didn't mean to but I didn't know how to explain it so I don't do the right thing in that to fit in with them but I didn't know I was autistic then I mean, I think you you put in quite a lot of pressure on oh, yourself saying now. you didn't yeah. do these things. I think there has to be a balance in the relationship, you know, because it has to be, one has to be self-aware, but then also people have to get used to other individuals as well, you know? Because, I mean, you mentioned being blunt. There's lots of my friends that are very blunt, but that's just who they are, you I know, and you learn to... It's a dichotomy that sometimes that. I'm not blunt. I'm very effusive and flowering with language so to be honest i yes. i would find myself quite yeah. difficult <laughs> maybe um because sometimes i don't talk oh. and sometimes i do a lot and i don't always understand why but i do remember in secondary school because i moved about a lot when i was younger but in secondary school and i was in a group of girls you know girl friendships bit of a nightmare um they said to me once Oh, you can be normal at times. And that always <laughs> stuck with me because I didn't know what that meant or why I wasn't normal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh. Do you know what I mean? That unravels such a big conversation. I mean, the summary of what I think is um, high school particularly, you've got these humans with all these hormones and all these things that go around saying and doing stuff that can really stay with other people for years. The reality is I think everybody's going through stuff in high school and it is just a case of, for some people, projecting their insecurities on other, you know, high school children so they don't have their fears and insecurities seen. And it's just a shame that some of the things that are put on others are so long lasting, you know? School is obviously my passion and education. And um, after having my children, when they had significant medical issues, both of them, and I was really ill with infections and things, which just goes with my Ellis Danlos because of hormones, apparently, um, and disc issues. I, I had so many difficulties that... Um, but I wanted to help my eldest because we kept being excluded from primary school, preschool, even preschool, the nurseries. They said, we can't have your child here. And um, I went, oh, and I didn't know why. I mean, OK, they were very active and running around a lot, but um, and we didn't meet the milestones, but we didn't get any support. And so I tried um, a little farm nursery where you could run around a field and look after chickens and that worked really well but unfortunately it closed and then we had to go back to a sort of building and I actually quite like um mixed blended learning where you can be outside and inside because I never understood why you'd expect children to sit in the classroom all day and but that might be me as well and um so I didn't want uh, that exclusivity and I just wanted the, when he got to primary school, we were being excluded again and they kept asking me to go in because I was treated like a bad parent, a bad mother, 
for not training my child to sit down still or sit in assembly or eat. So just to back up for a second, what were the what were the reasons given for excluding your child from preschool and from school cope. as well? And in those days, I didn't know how to, you know, I didn't know about any um, Education Act or anything else. And we just kept being excluded. And so we were coming up to primary school and I thought, this isn't going to work. And I'd seen a few, I'd seen an educational psychologist and all the questions were aimed at me and um, my then husband. And um, I felt very much we were being blamed and what was causing this. And I thought, well, there has to be, there has to be a better person than this helping our children. So um, I decided that I had to do something about this. And um, so I think basically I was separated and soon divorced by then. I, I think we had one computer. It was really, 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 really old. It was like 10 feet long and, you know, four feet wide and took about an hour to turn on and an hour to turn off. And do you remember dial-up? It would like dial up and it would take so long just to do Oh my one. gosh, yes, yes. And the awful sound it used to make. Yeah. <laughs> and I was learning. I remember. It this must have been about 1996, 97. And I was trying to learn it because I'd missed out looking after the children, them being born, and all these medical issues were 24 hours a day, severe allergies uh, with skin as well. And, um, uh, I I looked up the Education Act and I I did it myself. I I got a statement of sin, and I thought, gosh, that's that wasn't so difficult. And the other thing was when I got the educational psychologist report, I saw this great big wad of paper, and you know this is about my child. What does cognitive mean? You know, it was written in that language. And I thought, I don't understand it, I don't understand it, I don't understand it, and I need to. So I decided I needed to do psychology. <laughs> and, um, I yeah, out of the blue. So um, a final question for you, because you've given so much information to us. If you could share one idea to improve the inclusivity of children that have autism and indeed adults that have autism, what could be done by the public at large, teachers? What would be one thing that you would um, encourage people to do? I think absolutely um, all autistic children need to be um, listened to. When I was teaching in an advisory role, we had to do those formal reports that I had received in a very formal way. And we had to write them in a very formal way and give them to parents. And I said, you know, half the answer might be writing them for the parents and the pupils. If they're of an age, they can read it. And I was really slammed down for that. Um, this was before something called the Education Health Care Plan. It was still a statement of saying, and uh, I was really not, I didn't like that idea at all, not for them. And it was quite shocking. So 
but so many times as an advisory teacher, the teachers would say, oh, Joe Bloggs would do this or Joe Bloggs would do that. Usually I'd always get the boy cases. We didn't have many girls then. And, um, and they don't know why they're doing it. And I said, well, have you asked Joe Bloggs? And they go, no. I said, well, why don't we go and ask Joe what they want or why they're doing it? And it didn't occur to them. It, it happened so many times. And the same with me. Uh, I've had so many issues. And if they'd just asked me, and it's still going on, I still have a lot of barriers, especially in health, um, which is quite sad um, and needs a lot of work on. Um, I'm very, I think, I think a lot of things need to be um, understood a little bit more. I think in schools, a lot is always put down to anxiety in, and that's why, particularly for autistic children, and that's why they're not coping. But sometimes they are physical issues. So we know that a lot of, there is data out there. Um, luckily, I link with um, a, a researcher called Dr. Eccles, who's doing research on autism and co-occurrences with other things like hypermobility. And uh, we know it's out there, but um, what's really interesting is we're finally now getting a Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility school toolkit because so many teachers know that their children are not in school. Um, they've got chronic illness, but they, they don't have a diagnosis because it's so hard to get. Um, they're sometimes walking around and sometimes in a wheelchair. and um, it's that accusation of disbelief that you're making it up or even worse, the parent is making it up and keeping their child off school. And so that has, that understanding has to change that we're not making it up autistic children and adults find it really difficult to understand their, their physical health. So we're not aware sensory wise, if we're hungry at times until we're suddenly hungry, thirsty, I don't, I don't always recognize when I'm thirsty at all or hungry um, and uh, it can be toileting issues. It can be temperature issues. We have it physically, but also we might not be aware it's hot or cold. It, it's working uh, out and the system with us. So I would say anything that involves us should be with us in, in transport, social care, health, um, education should be with us leading it in co-production which means from the initial concept, if possible. I mean, we're not all doctors, for example, so that's going to be an issue with medical health issues, but at least, you know, we can do as much as we can, which is why I'm so excited to be um, policy lead with the first training for medical doctors, actually, uh, on autism. And I think, so yes, knowing about the health issues that um, this is really affecting our children because we don't have the energy as well. We get chronic fatigue syndrome, stroke ME. And what's really interesting as well now um, is COVID. So some of the long-term chronic symptoms uh, exhibiting by people who've got this long COVID are, seem to be quite similar to some of the symptoms we have had and not believed and it goes on and on, the chronic fatigue sort of thing and breathing issues, possibly. Uh, I'm not an expert in this, but it 
seems to be quite relevant and um i get a lot of allergies uh which weren't believed and they affect your whole autonomic nervous system but allergies are very very key for our children if you've got eczema hay fever or asthma you need to be really aware of this um it's a really key indicator i don't want to worry too much but just keep an eye on you know how how children are sitting do they find it very difficult to sit up are they always flopping or needing propping up are they not reaching their milestones and what's really i'm really really um delighted that i've my passion to help children is finally coming to fruition i hope in that i'm leading on the new alistanal school toolkit and it's it's free it's going to be all free but it's so that education staff will know some key some key points why the child might be doing this and what to look for and how to refer on because that's not happening at the moment and the parents are not being believed and um and these children are bright you know they want to learn but they just can't manage the whole school day and i hope that blending learning comes into it more as well after covid Well, I think, like I said, Jane, you've given us so much there. And I think the last point you're making of listening to children and believing children and parents is great. Just want to say a massive thank you for giving us your time this evening. So um, thank you again, Jane. And we'll hopefully have you on for another chat sometime again soon. I'd love to. Thank you very much. A massive thank you to Jane for making time for us there so much ground covered and i'm really hoping that from jane's story people are inspired to seek support i do believe that we're in a much better place now where people can access support as and when they need it if you believe that you could do with some support regarding neurodiversity there are a range of organizations that are available if you google them so do look online now that's it for this episode we really hope you found it helpful we look forward to seeing you next time on live from the hive take care of yourself